The White House is out with fresh guidance for securing federal software. It will require companies to self-certify to agencies that they're following best practices for developing software. The goal is to prevent future solar winds-like attacks. Here with the latest Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. And what's in this software guidance that just came out, Justin? I smell bill of materials. Oh, yeah, we can we can talk about good, good old S-bombs. But the upshot here is that the Office of Management and Budget is requiring agencies to obtain these self-attestations from software vendors that they use, that they're following uh, secure development practices, uh, those that are established by the National Institute of Standards and Technology. And this really stems from last year's cybersecurity executive order. It applies to agencies' use of third-party software, which in turn affects the you know vast array of contractors and software producers in the federal procurement uh, ecosystem. In a blog post published uh, just with the guidance coming out yesterday, Federal Chief Information Security Officer Chris Darusha really described the the impetus behind the push for better software security, starting with the 2020 SolarWinds compromise. That that small the small change in malicious source code that was added to the SolarWinds software allowed these attackers to really steal information from multiple federal agencies and private sector companies. And Darusha writes that not too long ago, the only real criteria for the quality of a piece of software was whether it worked as advertised and security was more of an afterthought. This OMB memo seeks to put security at the forefront of how agencies are using software going forward through a self-attestation process. And does this apply to software as a service as well as packaged software that is loaded onto agency servers? It's a broad brush. It covers all third-party software running on agency networks or any software that affects agency information. So essentially, if the software is touching federal data, then we'll have to conform with these practices. Right. So they can't let the cloud providers off the hook here then. No, exactly. But it will be the software vendors themselves, according to the memo, who have to come up with the self-attestation, whether that comes through a cloud service provider or a managed service provider. That might have to be determined by the agencies through their procurement practices. And self-attestation, do they have to write this out in blue-black ink on vellum and send it to the agency with a wax seal on the envelope, or how does this all work? I think it's likely to be digital. It it will essentially just be a specific sort of uh, document that lays out, here's the software, here's how we followed some of these best practices established by NIST. It's not going to be an extensive document necessarily. And it's uh, called a conformance statement, as described by the NIST guidance. And each agency will have to obtain that self-attestation for the software they're using from the software vendors, as we mentioned earlier. It also allows agencies to accept a plan of action and milestones when software vendors can't say that they meet all of the NIST practices. They can essentially write out a plan that says, hey, we're not doing this yet, but we will one day get we will get to this at, at this point in time going forward. OMB is allowing agencies, however, to set more stringent software security practices if they choose. While self-attestation is the minimum level required, agencies can also require a third-party assessment, uh, depending on the criticality of the service or product that we're talking about here. So 
the self-attestation here is really being set as the baseline of what agencies will need from software vendors moving forward. Right. So it sounds as if a self-attestation from a software vendor that might be used by 25 agencies won't suffice to cover those 25 agencies if one of them says, no, no, we want third party or we want this or that. Exactly. And that's a decision that the agency will have to make based on the level of risk that they think they're taking by putting this software in a certain part of their network or allowing certain dependencies uh, and mission critical things to be dependent on that software. So the idea that they're setting up here is that everyone has a self-attestation ready to send to the agencies, but then an agency uh, on on a singular basis could say, hey, we need more. Or they could say, well, Give me the attestation you sent to the NSA, and that's good enough for me. Yeah, certainly. You could, and you could certainly see national, the National Security Agency and, and other more sensitive organizations setting a higher bar, perhaps, than, than some other agencies. And what about software bills of materials? This is something that's been in the White House cybersecurity plan for you know, a year and a half now. Well, it does not require the use of software bills of materials or SBOMs, but it does encourage agencies to obtain artifacts, what's, what are called artifacts from software vendors, essentially evidence that demonstrate they're actually conforming to these secure software standards. And an SBOM is a primary example of one of those artifacts in this guidance here. You know, their dire- OMB is directing agencies to use SBOMs that are uh, defined by the National Telecommunications and Information Administration in its report on SBOMs. So there's some guidance there. CISA is also working on new guidance for agency use of SBOMs going forward. So there's more developments to watch there. This guidance, while it does not require such artifacts, SBOMs, uh, evidence that a vendor uses a vulnerability disclosure program, or evidence that they use automated tools and processes, those are all things that OMB is encouraging agencies to consider using as part of their software security requirements. And what are all the deadlines here? Yeah, so agencies have 90 days to inventory all of their third-party software, including a separate inventory for critical software. And then agencies have about 270 days to either collect attestation letters for uh, critical software uh, from the vendors. And then within one year, agencies should have collected all of those attestation letters for all third-party software that they use. So really looking at that one-year timeline for agencies to have these attestations in place. OMB is also working with CISA and the General Services Administration uh, over the next 180 days to come up with a centralized repository for these software attestations and artifacts. So a centralized place where agencies can get these requirements uh, sorted out. All right. So everybody get your clipboard out, start that inventory. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. You're welcome, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology 
at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology, and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances 
um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI, who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from those stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, 
So helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. I'm I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in in federal service? And she said, "Uh, isn't that for old people? (laughs) I said, "Uh, (laughs) um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.